Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> you guys are so good. So for those of you watching online today, you'll notice we're not in the courthouse because that this is the one week every year that uh, we are um, required to uh, move because they have another event already scheduled, an annual event. So we will be back there at our regular location next week. And so we're at Bait Crafters today, and we're thankful for Michael for letting us uh, use the facility. But you may notice we're kind of thin this morning because not only are we not at our usual location today, but we're having a blizzard in Chattanooga. Um, you know, some of you may laugh when I say that, but we've got three inches of snow out there on the ground uh, th- that has come down this morning, and it's still coming down. And so um, if I wasn't teaching, I might have stayed home and watched it online myself. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. And gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for the mercies you've given us. We pray your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds, draw us close to you, help us understand your methods and principles and how to live them out in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number eight in the uh, quarterly uh, Daniel, and the title for this week is From the Stormy Sea to the Clouds of Heaven. And the first paragraph says... in. The vision of Daniel 7, our topic for this week, parallels the dream of Daniel 2, but Daniel 7 expands on what was revealed in Daniel 2. First, the vision occurs at night and portrays the sea agitated by four winds. Darkness and water evoke creation, but here creatures appear to be somewhat distorted or under attack. Second, the animals in the vision are unclean and hybrid, which represents a violation of the created order. Third, the animals are portrayed as exerting dominion, thus it appears that the dominion God gave to Adam in the garden has been usurped by these powers. Fourth, with the coming of the Son of Man, God's dominion is restored to those who in, to whom it proper belongs. What Adam lost in the garden, the Son of Man recovers in the heavenly judgment. So, Adam was given dominion. How was Adam in Eden to govern the earth? What what method was Adam to use in governance? Methods that God uses. Methods that God uses. Truth, love, freedom, self-sacrifice. Uh, the kingdoms of the sinful world represented by these animals, what methods do they use and how are those methods different from God's methods? Selfishness. Selfishness. And, and the, so it's about advancing self rather than sacrificing to build up. It's about domination over. And what kinds of laws are used in the two kingdoms? Uh, so the human human earthly governments use the imperial system or impose laws that they have to then punish disobedience by coercion, whereas God uses design laws and harmony with those bring health, happiness, and life. What of the idea that what Adam lost, the Son of Man recovers in the heavenly judgment? Does somebody might go? Wait a second, is that really the deal? Mm-hmm. Is it the heavenly judgment that he recovers what Adam lost? I don't like the language because I find it imprecise. I'm not going to suggest that the heavenly judgment isn't part of a process that restores what Adam lost. But I don't think it's actually restored there. Christ said, John 12, 31 to 32, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up to the earth, from the earth, will draw all unto, uh, to me. So Christ is saying the driving out of Satan is happening at the time of the cross. Okay? 
And so it seems to me that the cross was the pivotal point in defeating Satan. It says in Hebrews 2.14 that by his death he destroys him and holds the power of death that is the devil. So it really seems the cross is the pivotal point. And then after the cross, there's application of what he achieved. And the sanctuary message is really a description of the application of the victories of Christ, uh, which are occurring. When you hear the term judgment, what law lens do you hear it through? Human or design? Imposed law, design law. Judgment under human law means a legal examination of broken rules and a determination by the judge of guilt and innocence, followed by an imposition of either punishments or rewards. Isn't that how the human system works? Notice, that's the human system. How much of what we teach about God is simply a, a retelling of the human law model? Under Judgment under uh, design law, though, is God judging or diagnosing what's actually wrong, and then God's judging what is the best therapeutic action to take to fix what is wrong. And we're going to unpack more in judgment as we go through. A quick overview in Sunday's lesson of the four animals. A quick overview of the four animals uh, from Daniel 7. Four beasts followed by a little horn that uproots three horns and speaks with great words and seeks to change times and laws. So, the general interpretation, the general interpretation of this is that the beasts represent successive kingdoms. And the lion, and we're just going to go through this real quick and then we're going to move on to other issues. The lion with uh, wings represents Babylon. Bear with ribs in its mouth represents Medo-Persia. And that was followed by the leopard with four wings and four heads, which represents Greece. Followed by the dreadful beast with iron teeth and claws, which represent Rome. Followed by ten horns, which represent the kingdoms or nations that Rome fractured into. Followed by a little horn with eyes that uproots three, representing papal Rome. Monday's lesson. And the focus on Monday's lesson is on the little horn. And the war that is waged against the saints until the ancient of days comes. Now, in... in, in uh, this little horn, it rises up at the end of the, uh, of, the pap- of the pagan powers in Rome, and it uproots three horns, and it's represented as papal Rome, and it's going to war against the saints until the Ancient of Days comes and does something. What does the Ancient of Day come and do that helps turn the tide of this war? Well, Daniel seven twenty one and 22, the Ancient of Days in the NIV says, comes and pronounces judgment in favor of the saints. The, uh, the King James reads this way, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came for them to possess the kingdom. So when you hear this idea of judgment pronounced or judgment given, what law lens, again, are you hearing judgment through? If it's the human law lens, then you hear this and judgment was given. Do you hear it this way? Well, it was winning until God um, in heaven had a courtroom scene, had a judicial review of events and records, giving a legal pronouncement in favor of the saints. Is that what you hear happening? Well, if you have the, the human law lens, that's what you hear. If you have design law, then you understand that God is imparting or giving to the saints judgment, or also known as discernment, the ability for them to make a right judgment. The Hebrew word translated in the NIV pronounced and translated in the King James given, judgment given in the King James, judgment pronounced in the NIV, that word actually means to impart or to give. 
So the King James is actually more accurate. So judgment is given or imparted to the saints. Well, the question would be, why would the saints need God to impart or give judgment to them? Because they didn't have it. Well, they're in a war, right? And the war in Daniel 7 says the little horn is waging war. Well, what kind of a war? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Mental, you said. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. That we live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons used are, are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up. Now, notice the central threat or central issue in the war. The knowledge of God. And take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Now, if we're in a war over arguments, pretensions, knowledge, and thought... Where's the battlefield? In the mind. And the central issue, according to Paul, is the knowledge of God. Now, there's a little horn power that is waging war against the saints. Satan is the father of lies. Who would those lies be focused upon primarily? The knowledge of God. And so, can you see that the, that the little horn, without even going into some more evidence and text I'm going to get to, but this little horn power would be using the powers of Satan, which are primarily lies, to get us to misunderstand God, and he's winning. Until what? Until judgment or discernment is given to the saints to tell the difference between the lies and the truth. And then the power is broken. So, the lesson rightly connects the little horn of Daniel 7 with the man of sin in Second Thessalonians. And notice how the man of sin, which is another way of describing the little horn, is described in Second Thessalonians 2. Concerning the coming of the Lord Christ, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Understand the dynamic here. And we're going to come back to it in the 2300-day prophecy if we get to it in Thursday, Friday's lesson. But the dynamic is that God is telling his friend Daniel, 490 years are set aside for your people to be the conduit for the avenue for the Messiah. And when he comes in the middle of that last week, the oblations and sacrifices are going to cease and he's going to put, um, you know, basically achieve what's necessary for salvation. He's going to fulfill all that. But then a little horn power is going to rise up and he's going to wage war. And he's going to be defeating him until it's going to be 2,300 years until enough truth is recovered for the sanctuary to be cleansed. He's going to defile the sanctuary. No, notice what he says here. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way until the day comes, until the rebellion occurs. That's the Christ one, rebellion. The man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. When you hear man of lawlessness, that term, man of lawlessness, what does that mean? What does it mean to be lawless? Without the law. Without the law. Okay, what law lens are you hearing that through? Rules? Well, he's a rule breaker. He speeds, doesn't pay his taxes. Is that what you're hearing? Or what would it mean lawless in a design law worldview. Think that through. By the protocols. Yes, operating outside the protocols that God built life to operate upon. 
So breaking the law. Denying they exist. And denying they exist. Yes. Uh, actually reframing everything outside of design law into imperial law. This, this is the universe. God makes up rules, and God's the one who's the source of inflicted pain, and God punishes rule breakers, this kind of thing, rather than the truth that God's laws are the protocols of love, truth, liberty, exertion, and, and so on, and, and worship, and, and, and many more. And that's how reality is designed to work. So he's a lawless person who denies how God actually built reality to work. And he seeks to overthrow, invalidate, disregard, deny God's law. And the little horn seeks to do change times and laws. For the little horn power sets itself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What does it mean to set oneself up in God's temple? Does this mean after Christ came to earth, won the victory at the cross, rises again on the third day, ascends into heaven, that sometime in about 60 AD, 30 years later, Paul's writing this, he's telling us that this little horn power, this little man of sin is going to arise, he's going to ride up into heaven, knock Jesus off his throne in heaven, and start reigning in heaven. So what does he mean he's going to set himself up in God's temple, if it's not the temple in heaven? Because much of Adventism is stuck on this idea that the action is happening in heaven in some building. But Paul is telling you that there's a man of sin that sets himself up in God's temple. And if we're going to take the action to heaven, then we're going to have to say this man of sin went into heaven and knocked Jesus off his thrones and, and, and defiling and reigning there. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to suggest to you it's not the temple in heaven, but it's the spirit temple. Yeah. And how did he do this? How would, how would this man of sin displace our conception of God and begin reigning in the spirit temples, the God that we worship? Leading lies at times. Believing lies about God so that we believe in God, but we have a completely mischaracterization of God. And the, giving God his attributes. Giving God, and the core central lie, the root lie. God's law operates like human law. God's law operates like human law, seeking to change times and laws. And once the Christian world accepted the lie, God's law works like human law. He makes up rules, and justice requires the rule giver to enforce his rules. And thus, if you disobey, he must punish with, sin, with, with death. Then God becomes the source of death. God becomes the one we need to be protected from. Jesus died to pay his father a legal penalty. And everything gets reframed in a legal lie rather than the truth that God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. So if the spirit temple has been contaminated with lies about God, such that this man of sin reigns in the minds of people in in this false conception of God, would those lies need to be cleansed before the Lord comes? Would there need to be a cleansing of this temple? Yes. Well, notice Malachi 3, 1 through 3 describes the same events as Daniel 8, 14. Daniel 8, 14, 2300 years or days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Malachi 3, 1 through 3 describes the same events. And notice, Daniel just gives us time, 8, 14 gives us a time frame for it. Malachi actually unpacks the process or the focus of what's being cleansed. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What do those things do? They cleanse. No, notice what he cleanses. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them with gold and silver. Notice this process of cleansing is cleansing the hearts and minds of those who profess a faith in God from the lies and distortions first, and then from all of the fears and insecurities and, and carnalness that we struggle with. But that's only after we've been won back to trust. A lot of echoes of Isaiah 33 in there. Who can stand the cleansing fire? 
Yes. Yes, yes. And the ones who stand are? Those. That's right, those who've been healed. We stand there. That's great. So God is cleansing people from, one, the lies about him, which keep us from trusting him, and then when we're won back to trust, he cleanses us from sin. God writes his law of love in our hearts and minds. He restores his character of righteousness in us. We're renewed. This is what's happening in what some call the investigative judgment. We're going to unpack more of that as we go through. I want to understand there are several elements involved here. And just because I focused on this one element doesn't deny that other elements are happening simultaneously. Some will say, oh, Je- Jennings is, is focusing on God's and is teaching God's healing our hearts and minds investigate. He's denying anything's happening in heaven. No, I'm not. I just didn't talk about that. God can actually multitask. Okay? He can do more than one thing at one time. But I get this all the time, and I focus on one aspect to help bring, bring us appreciation and understanding of that aspect, and people will say, because I didn't focus on the other aspect that they value, that somehow I denied it. I didn't. Tuesday's lesson. Some struggle with the idea of cleansing in Daniel 8.14 being the temple. It is the temple referred to by... Paul in Second Second Thessalonians. They actually disconnect them. That over in Daniel, we have a temple up in heaven. But over in Thessalonians, we're not sure what that temple is. They they see the disconnect if uh, if the temple is in heaven that Paul's referring to, because that doesn't make any sense that the man of sin went up into heaven and uh, pulled Jesus off his throne up there. That makes no sense. How can he reign in that temple? They understand it can't be that. It has to be this. But but the lesson um uh confirms for us that the little horn power and the man of sin are the same. So the little horn power is contaminating and defiling the sanctuary that in Daniel 8.14 is being cleansed, and that little horn power is also the man of sin, as the lesson says it is, and we agree. But that temple is not the one in heaven. You see, you see the problem here. One of the problems is that they uh, interpret, that set, that set the problem for this, is that they interpret Daniel 7 as being a legal court. A court that is a judicial court. If we take a more straightforward approach and ask what's actually being described, I think you're going to see something else. And so let's just read Daniel 7, 9, 10, 13, and 14. And just ask, what, is, what do you, as you read the text, hear being described in this? As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair uh, what, of his head was white like wool. His throne was a flaming fire, and its wheels were ablaze. The river of fire was flowing out from before him. Thousands and thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. In my vision, at night, I looked, and there before me was one who, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What do you hear is the process going on here? The royal court. Yes, this is a royal court. The court of heaven is seated. It's a coronation. It's receiving one's a kingdom or authority. But if you go to the Bible already believing, hey, you know what? God's law functions like human law. 
He is a he is a just God. He makes up just laws and he imposes just rules and then he polices those justly and he imposes just penalties. You notice how that word just, just, just. Okay, that's how it's always described. But functionally, yes, he's the just judge. Functionally, though, it's always through an imperial um, lens like humans operate on. And so when you go to it and then you see that, then you falsely believe and you hear words like court, you immediately conclude, well, that's a courtroom. That's a, he's sitting as a judge. The books open have to be judicial books. They have to be legal documents. They have to be deeds of behaviors that are going to be investigated because you already have a premise that it is a judicial process. But what I hear being described is the royal court, and if you actually look at the Hebrew here, which is the Hebrew translated um, court here, and I won't go through all the Hebrew, but I've got it in the notes for those who want it, from the theological word book of the Old Testament, they describe this word to mean um, to govern, in the whole range of activities of government, legislative, executive, judicial, or otherwise. So it is much broader than a judicial court. It is the, it is the power or authority of the entire sovereignty of God that's being described in this court, which is a royal court. Once we recognize that the court seated is the royal court of the universe convening for the governmental action of coronating Christ, then we see something much more profound than a judicial process happening. Now, a couple of questions about that. Why is Christ actually, what's the reason to have a coronation of Christ? Wasn't he always God? Is Christ actually receiving from his father new authorities, new powers that he's never had before? Yes or no? No, he's always been one with the father. He has life, original, unborrowed, underived. He's always been fully God. And why, if he's always had these powers, always had this authority, why are we having a coronation that appears to be giving him these authorities? And why is it happening in this time in history? Did Satan allege something about Christ? That he either had no right to the powers or didn't have the powers? And thus the coronation... Yes, Russell? Could you argue that although he was the author of the remedy, he didn't have it? This isn't about the remedy. This is about his coronating powers. He's going to run the sovereign universe. Yeah, but isn't this his coronation after the remedy's been secured? That's true. That's true. It's after the remedy's been secured, but it's happening in front of the angels in heaven. Yes. Okay, who don't need the actual remedy that we need. Okay? So, so, oh, I see where you're going with this. Okay. Yes. They needed knowledge of the remedy. Right, they right. The remedy itself, but yes. they needed knowledge yes. of the remedy. Yes, so that's what, yes, exactly. He needed Satan's lies. Yes, yes. So why are we having this coronation? Not because he's receiving something or he earned something he didn't already have, but he revealed something that was not understood. So Satan had alleged that he wasn't worthy or it wasn't right for Christ to have these powers, and thus in the minds of the intelligent beings, the truth which had always been true the everlasting gospel, the everlasting eternal good news is now recognized of who Jesus and God are. Now I want you to, what we just read, have it in mind, Daniel chapter 7. Now we're going to read Revelation chapter 5. With Daniel chapter 7 in your mind, what we just read about that. Ancient of days, taking his thrones, rivers of fire coming out, 10,000 times 10,000. Um, um, the books are open, and then, and then um, one, like the Son of Man, comes and receives it. Now let's look at, da- at Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the s- throne a scroll 
with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Pause. What is another synonym or word for, for scroll? Books. A book. Hmm. And, and as we unpack the rest of the chapter, will this book be opened? So are we having a situation where the Ancient of Days has a book and the book is being opened? That's what we read in Daniel 7, isn't it? It just used a different word. People miss it. They don't connect the two. Let's keep going. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw the lamb looking as if he'd been slain, standing at the center of the throne, circled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and all 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp that they were holding uh, golden, and, and were holding a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song. Now notice what they sing. Remember this coronation. Why does he need a coronation? Because lies were told. Because heavenly beings didn't fully appreciate the truth of who God was. Notice the lamb who was slain, who's taken this book, who's about to open this book. And what do they say? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. And every from every tribe, nation, and language, and people, you have made them to be kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign on, uh, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. Do you remember in Daniel seven? We have thousands and thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand standing there. This is the same group. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They sang, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in the heavens and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and more. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Do you hear anything different or is this just the same experience of Daniel 7 being described in Revelation 5? Do you see it? It's the same process going on, the two things. And what's being described? The intelligences in the universe recognize Jesus as worthy. And Jesus receives all power and authority that he'd already possessed all along, but he receives it in the hearts and minds of the intelligent beings that they now can allow him to continue to possess it that he's always had, but without fear anymore. Okay? You've heard the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is one of Satan's allegations. Oh, give him power, we've got a ruler over us now. We're not free anymore. And what Jesus revealed at the cross was that even though he had all power at the cross, he wouldn't, use, he wouldn't even use power to stop people from abusing and killing him. He's the one who's safe with the power. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He has all power. We trust him with the power. We know he'll never abuse the power. We're safe in a universe with him in control of the power. We worship the one with the power because we're safe in his hands. This, this is part of what was being described here. This is with Daniel 7 in Revelation, and it ends up with this worship. But notice... 
The lies of Satan are refuted in the minds of the intelligences at a particular time in Earth's history while all this is taking place. And now is the time in human history for a message to go forth. At the same time that this is happening in heaven, a message is to go forth in human history, and that message is, then I saw another angel in midair, and he had an eternal gospel. The eternal good news. The good news has always been true, but now the war that the little horn's been waging, darkening our minds, is coming to an end because judgment is being given. Discernment is being given to the saints. We can see the lies now for what they are. We can see the truth about who God is. We in our hearts and minds can follow him in to his coronation where he's being recognized as worthy. And... We can proclaim to all those who live on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The time for people to make a right judgment and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Stop worshiping this imperial dictator that set itself up in God's temple, proclaiming itself to be uh, God. Instead, reject that and come back and worship him who made the heavens and, and the earth. This is the message that is to go forward at this time in earth's history. And we're going to discover that this message has been, again, um, undermined. Uh, undermined, thank you, perfect word, undermined by this penal legal thing that keeps warring against the truth about God. Did I see a hand somewhere else? Yes. Why did this whole process have to take so long? Is that because God gives freedom? So, of mine? let's give a smaller analogy, but then you extrapolate up to an infinite God and a being as intelligent and powerful as Lucifer and, and see if this would work for you. Um, you're the pastor of your church, and your brother is the, is the uh, treasurer of the church. And one day your brother gets up in front of the church and tells a lie that, um, that you've been stealing money from the church. You've been embezzling. And he's cooked the books to make it look that way. But you've never taken a penny. You're completely innocent. It's all fraud. It's all, it's all fraudulent. He might have hired somebody from Russia to create a dossier. <laughs> it's fraudulent. It's fraudulent. It's all a lie. How, if you got up before the church and simply said to the church, hey, guys, I love my brother, but this is not true. This is a lie. God gets for the universe and says, I love Lucifer, but what he's saying is untrue. If you got in front of your church and just declared your innocence, would that be an end to the process? No. But you've done nothing wrong. Why doesn't it end it? If you, had, if you were powerful, if you had an army at your back, if you were the head of the FBI, if you could bring in the, the National Guard and arrest your brother and imprison him for telling this lie, would that then save the day and everyone be, would, would now believe you? Or would, in fact, more people disbelieve you if you did that? Does this give you an insight as to why it's taking so long? You cannot win hearts and minds by threats of punishment on those who don't love and trust you. Only a revelation of truth over time, leaving people free to reap consequences. And why are people not seeing this? I will tell you they're not seeing it because they're completely, as it says in Revelation, this, this um, power intoxicates the world on the wine of Babylon. Okay? And the wine of Babylon is imperialism. 
It is that God's law functions like human law, and thus the whole world is intoxicated with this idea of an imperial God who has to keep rules, and then they argue back and forth. I've seen this play out in the last two weeks after a blog I wrote, and there were so many protestations. I wrote a blog recently, and for those who understand the moral levels of development, my blog was about principles and purposes, level six and seven. It's about the principles of liberty, the principles of truth, the principles of, 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 uh, of love and, and how those principles went out in the day and about the purposes of God and how God's purposes are, will, will supersede a rule. Like God had a purpose in telling Abraham to go sacrifice his son, which seemed to be breaking rules. Now, he ultimately, of course, didn't violate the law of love, but he had a purpose in that. He had a purpose in bringing a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, to take captive Israel. There's a purpose in that because of the situation, because of the condition that's going on. When you understand the larger principles and purposes, then you can understand things that look on the surface to maybe not be. But if you're operating at level four, level four is all about right behavior, right conduct, right definition of rules, right doctrines, and rule keeping. And anybody who breaks the rules or speaks badly or acts badly, well, that's evil and you must be opposing them. And that's kind of the pushback with a lot of level four thinkers. And you see this process happening. I, I think you're being charitable. I think level four, I'm seeing, I, I read the comment sections, level twos and threes. Lots of level two and three comments. Okay. I But it really comes back to how do you see God's law? This is, the, this is what it's rooted in. Levels one through four still see God's law as imperial, regardless of the maturity level. The, the, the pet level one, reward and punishment, the person in charge will have to punish if we disobey. So it's still very much imperialistic. They may have not got sophisticated where there's an established law that they have to abide by, but the person in charge is the punisher. Or the rewarder. That's level one. Yeah. So um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. Wednesday's lesson. The lesson acknowledges this is not a human legal court. It's very interesting. In the Wednesday's lesson, they said the paragraph reads, The Son of Man is also a royal figure. He receives dominion and glory and kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. It further states that the judgment portrayed here shows that true worship is eventually restored. This is a quote. The judgment portrayed here shows that true worship is eventually restored. Pause. Think. Reason that out. What is required? Required for true worship. Freedom. Okay, freedom would be required. Truth. Trust would be required. Yes. Oh, truth, evidence. Yes. How about this? What, what are, let me put it this way. Where are changes required to occur in order for true worship to be restored? Ah, okay. So if we have a judicial process in some external review authority, going through historical record books, making judicial pronouncements, is that actually doing anything in the hearts and minds of people? So can you restore true worship through an external judicial review? No. No. In order for true worship to be restored... This requires that those who are deceived by the little horn power, by the lies, who are worshiping a false conception of God, have those false conceptions removed from their minds. If those false conceptions are not removed from their minds, true worship can't be restored, can it? So where is the cleansing again taking place? 
in the minds, in the hearts. People who believe that it is happening in the law books and it is a judicial review, do they not agree that the change needs to happen in the hearts and minds, that there, will be a, that there is a change of heart and mind? Well, um, you would have to ask them, and I would suggest that there is a... I, I don't know what they believe. Know, okay, you would have to ask them, but I would suggest that there is a wide range of beliefs on this. Because it is, I have talked to certain theologians that will use language like this, that we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are justified. And justification means that we are declared to be legally righteous even though we're not. So the change is a legal one in a book registry in heaven, not in your heart. But then sometime between now and heaven... But the, the, the sanctification, they would say, is to occur. We are to grow and to mature, but we never really become righteous until the second coming. That's when we become righteous, when we are glorified. So in their view, we aren't really righteous. We're just legally declared to be righteous, and we are growing in maturity, in Christian maturity. But Christian maturity is not righteousness. Okay? And we don't actually get righteousness, so it, they still operate under the premise that we're not righteous. So, But there are people who think that by... Having the books changed by having this done, I'm so drawn to that. I I am I fall in love with God. So therefore, I'm changed of heart and mind because now I change my focus from say myself to a loving God that would be so gracious to have wiped out my wrongs. I think there's a name for that, but it's interesting to me with the um, how how easy it is to slip into this idea of a moral influence where. One is so drawn by the actions of this loving God that by that by that I am changed. And I want to say the distinction between what you're saying, it seems to me, and what that is. Yeah, I get accused of teaching moral influence theory all the time. I'm trying to try Okay, and I don't teach moral influence theory. <laughs> but if you understand the moral development levels, people, just like developing in any other aspect of your being, you can't run until you first learn to walk. You can't walk until you first learn to crawl. Okay, um, you don't go from crawling to running. Okay, you don't go from um, from from childlike thinking to mature thinking uh, in one leap. There's a whole process of developmental constructs that one develops along the way to be able to have mature, discerned thinking. And uh, level um, in the in the moral developmental levels, you only really are able to process and comprehend one level above the level you're operating at. And so, people at level four, which is law and order understand and reject level five, which is love for other people. And love for other people would, would lead to the moral influence theory of atonement. He loved us so much, he died to win us back to love. That's moral influence. They understand level five, and they reject it as being insufficient for the plan of salvation because the Bible actually teaches more than that was needed. More than just revealing truth to win us to trust, something else was needed to actually fix the damage of sin in human beings. And Christ came to fix that damage of sin in human beings as well. But having um, rejected level five, they stay stuck at level four and don't understand level six and seven, which gives them the additional meanings. And so we end up, I end up, when I'm teaching level six and seven of, um, of the plan of salvation, being accused by those at level four of teaching moral influence theory. So that, that's what happens over and over again. So again, back to the question of restoring. I'm just showing you functionally. The, the, the lesson rightly says that judgment portrays here, shows that true worship is eventually restored. Can you restore true worship without restoring hearts and minds? That's how you restore true worship. And would removal of the lies from their minds, which results in their gaining insight, wouldn't that result in their gaining insight or wisdom or judgment? And thus, this is what 
it said in Daniel 7. The little horn was winning, winning until judgment was given to the saints, which was restoring their insider awareness. And then would rejecting the false views of God and in judging God as trustworthy, would that, would that then result in opening the heart to God? And would opening the heart to God and inviting him, him in result in transformation of the heart, being reborn, being renewed to be like Christ again? So you see the process starts with the truth about God, which sets you free from the lies, which restores us to true worship and ultimately trust in God, which heals the heart as the Spirit comes in. Could you also describe that as cleansing of the temple? The temple that Paul described that the little horn power or the man of sin set himself up again. What if we, if we use this term investigative judgment? We have to investigate to make a judgment. Well, think that through. In this cosmic conflict, who are the beings who don't actually know some aspect of truth, who need to investigate to discover that aspect of truth in order for them to make a judgment. Does God not know some aspect of truth, and thus he needs to open the books and investigate so he can discover something he doesn't know, and then he can render a judgment? That's the human law model. The human judge doesn't know. The human judge has to have evidence presented, has to have arguments made, have to have prosecutor present, have to have the defense attorney present. How many times have you heard this in such a way, Jesus is our defense, pleading to the Father, etc., etc.? Does the Father actually need to investigate to know something? No, he's never been duped. He's never been deceived. He's never been misled. He's never had one moment of history, past, present, and future that was unrevealed to him. He knows it all. So who needs to investigate in order to make a judgment? Intelligent created beings. Intelligent created beings, and primarily at this time now, human beings are the ones that still need to investigate the truth about God and reject the lies of, of, of the evil one. But aren't we taught that it's the other intelligent beings in the other universes that are going to be investigating? Yes. Uh, yes, that we are taught this idea as well, that part of what's going on there so they can feel safe to have us as neighbors in heaven. Right. Okay? This is based on a false premise. Okay? Seriously, it is based on an idea that God's law works like our law to some extent. That without the review, without the review, that review of the records, the review of the history is what gives them confidence. It's the it's an external review of records, facts, and history that makes them feel safe. Reject it outright. It's re- design law. Go back to design law. What happens to unrepentant sinners when they step into the presence of unveiled glory of God, unveiled truth and love? What will happen in those rivers of fires we just read about in Daniel 7? For an unrepentant sinner to step into that river of fire, what happens? There is no need to investigate records to discover who's a safe neighbor. It will be self-evident. All those who are unsafe will be tormented and beg for the rocks and mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. They don't want to be there. All those who, as Isaiah 33, who can stand in the eternal burning consuming fire? He who walks righteously. They're standing in that, celebrating, rejoicing, and praising God is prima facie evidence. You're a good neighbor. Okay? So this whole, so, so that idea comes from vestiges of the imperial law still not fully worked out in the minds of people who are teaching that idea. Back in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, it says this. Remember the question about, do we need to make a judgment about God? 
Let God be proved true and every human being shown to be a liar, just as it is written, so that you will be justified in your words and you will prevail when you are judged, speaking about God. That God will prevail when he is being judged. Remember, great controversy. Who was lied about in heaven? The example we gave about you being the pastor and so forth. Who believed the lies? Both angels, some angels, and human beings. Okay, And even the angels that were loyal... And said, I trust Jesus, I've seen his character, but the, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure about this. Okay, they remained loyal, but they had uncertainties. So, God was lied about. Who now is being judged? God is being judged. By whom? Now, I want to tell you, there are people that have heard me say this and have completely... Uh, alleged that I, I reject the judgment, I teach that God is being judged, not us. When Elijah stood at Carmel and said to the people, I'll quote scripture, this is 1 Kings 18.21, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. End quote. What is Elijah calling on the people to do? Aren't they, isn't he called to make a judgment? Judge God. Okay? Are we often told that we are the Elijah people with an Elijah message for this time in history? Yes, we are. And I'm suggesting to you the prime message is if God is like an imperial Roman dictator who makes up rules and, and punishes rule breakers, worship him. But if God is he who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water, and his laws are the laws by which reality are built, then worship him. We are called to call people to make a judgment about God. That is what Revelation 14 is actually saying. The hour of his judgment has come. It's time for people. We have enough truth revealed for us to be able to make that decision now. That's what Revelation 14.7 is all about. But we, where people get confused is that in Scripture there are four different judgments. Four different judgments. In scripture, and they confuse them and they mix them all up. I'm going to go through them. First judgment is the judgment I just described. Elijah at Carmel. Mm -hmm. Revelation chapter 14. It is God has been lied about. We believe the lies. God is revealing truth and he's calling on us to examine, taste and see that there's good. Check me out. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. See the truth. Make a judgment on which you're going to believe that God is like Jesus revealed or God is like Satan says he is. That's the first judgment, our judgment of God. Second judgment. And this is a wide, vast judgment. God's judgment of our condition. First judgment, our judgment of God. Romans 2.4. God, may you uh, be proved right when you are judged. Uh, Elijah at Carmel. Revelation chapter 14. These are examples of our judgments of God. We are to make a judgment. And people get very uncomfortable. But just think through. Will our judgment of God determine whether we trust God or don't trust God? And will that determine whether we open the heart to God or don't open the heart to God? And will that determine whether we receive the Spirit to transform and heal us or don't receive the Spirit or not? So when I say our salvation is dependent on our judgment of God, not his judgment of us, that's because that's how reality works. 
only if we judge him trustworthy and open the heart do we receive a new heart and right spirit and transformed. However, those who operate in the imperial view, and there's a lot of them in leadership, I will tell you. And I recently had people writing emails uh, on this very point, suggesting Jennings doesn't believe that God judges us. It's our, our judging God. Because they see our salvation is not dependent on whether we judge God and trust him or not. It's dependent on whether God judges us in a judicial process. Because that's rules thinking, not reality thinking. So second judgment, though, there are four judgments. Second judgment, God's judgment of our condition. You might want to call this a diagnosis. He judges accurately the hearts and minds of all people. What's the condition of the heart? And the second aspect of that is just like a doctor, when I make a judgment, here's this condition, I'm immediately thinking, and here's what will be the remedy to get you well. Okay, so when I diagnose a condition, I've also judged the treatment. Here's the treatment. God judges our condition and judges the treatment necessary. Sometimes in Old Testament times, he's making judgments about therapeutic actions necessary to keep open the avenue for Messiah. Those were not judicial enforcements of punishment of rule breakers. Those were judgments in a battle between good and evil for God to provide the remedy and salvation. And you see that happening in the Old Testament. So God judges. I judge that this is the, the smallest excision of a necrotic lesion necessary to keep viable tissue for the Messiah to be born. Sodom and Gomorrah in the five cities. Without them on the plane, without them on the plane, what happened? Ten tribes still got evaporated, gone, closed. That avenue for Messiah, gone. My view is that that was the minimum excision he could do, and it was painless, completely painless, no suffering for those people. It was vaporization, instant. No torture, no suffering. And that's another example. And the New Testament says, and this is an example to us, okay, that God is not a torturer. He doesn't torture people. And so we see that working out. Judgment. And this also then is the investigative judgment. God is investigating the truth about who has trusted him and who has opened their heart and said, Lord, come in and fix the brokenness. How many of you in your personal journey in worship have said, Lord, like David, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. How many of you have said, search me and see the wicked way in me. How many of you said, Lord, come in and fix the brokenness in me. You see? And if we haven't had all that stuff fixed before the Lord comes and we should pass into the grave, have we not already given him permission to do that work in us? Oh, yeah. And when the, when the redeemed, the righteous, re- rise at the first resurrection, do they rise in sinfulness or sinlessness? So the thief on the cross who trusted Jesus, does that thief on the cross rise with the heart of a thief? Does Martin Luther, who was an anti-Semite, rise hating Jews? So, But did they die with all those victories? Or did they die saying... Lord, create in me a new heart and raised spirit. Lord, I trust you with my heart. Lord, fix the brokenness in me. But they didn't live long enough to experience that in their journey on earth. So in the investigative judgment, Christ fixes all that. He judges who has given me access and who wants me to fix it. And then what needs final healing and cleansing? And he does that so when they rise, they rise perfected. Some people are uncomfortable because they have a judicial law model. And they think what's recorded in the books of heaven are deeds. The Bible says in the Lamb's book of life are recorded the names. 
characters. In, in the Bible, name is a symbolic reference for your character. So Jacob, deceiver, was changed to Israel, one who with God overcomes, because his character changed. And thus, those of us who have trusted Jesus have our characters recorded in heaven, safe and secure, waiting for download at the resurrection into a new hardware. We get an upgrade. I'm so glad for that. (laughs) And Jesus is simultaneously healing our hearts and minds of the living on earth while we're making a judgment about him to trust and he's coming in and fixing us. He's fixing the data sets of all those who died trusting him. But in both aspects of this, there's not a judicial process. It's not a judicial review. It's an actual review of the state of being and restoring righteousness in the beings. Third judgment. Know you not that you will judge angels? This is during the thousand years. During the thousand years, those of us who were saved from earth and haven't had the opportunity to review the history that the angels in heaven have been reviewing, we get to actually have firsthand, if you want to call it that, review, accurate review of what happened back in eons past. We, can, we will have some type of, uh, it's way beyond video graphics, okay, <laughs> review of, of Lucifer's deception of the third of the angels. We're going to watch that play out in, in, during the thousand years, and we're going to be fully informed of how the whole thing transpired, which will only confirm in everything we see, it's going to go, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it over and over again. And we're going to be so confirmed by the evidence in the trustworthiness of God and the deceptions of the deceiver, and we're going to go, as we see some of the subtleties, and we're going to see in some places in our own life where, oh, I remember believing that lie. But we're going to see, and we're going to judge angels. And then the final fourth judgment is the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand years, when all come face to face with their own record as written in letters of fire as the fires of truth and love burn free and each person has full awareness of their own actual condition of character and their own history that they've lived out and that I believe will have full awareness of the pain and suffering they've caused others, that they have historically been denying. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Oh, that little kid really wanted it. The way people lie to themselves to justify they will have full awareness when they stand in infinite truth. And it will cause a terrible weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not an infliction from God, it simply is what it is. This is your character. This is who you are. And you can no longer hide from it. And they will beg for the mountains to follow them. That's the fourth judgment. So what is the truth about Jesus being our mediator? What law lens do you see mediation through? If we use the human-imposed law lens, then mediation is legal advocacy. Jesus is our heavenly attorney, representing us legally before the heavenly tribunal to plead our case to God, pay the uh, proper legal penalties uh, to get the uh, law paid for and get uh, our records expunged, and so uh, God can execute proper justice in the legal counting systems of heaven. But if we understand design law, we understand that God has been lied about, and Jesus is the Father's envoy, representative, agency, mediator, with all his creation to achieve God's purposes in refuting the lies healing and healing the damage 
caused by Satan's rebellion. Thus, Jesus is mediating the remedy to sin to us and the unfallen beings. One of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote the following. First, a couple quotes. First quote is Rio and Herald, January 11, 1881. While we, we rejoice that there are worlds which have never fallen, these worlds render praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for the plan of redemption to save the fallen sons of Adam as well as to confirm themselves in their position and character of purity. The arm that raised the human family from the ruin which Satan had brought upon the race through his temptations is the arm which has preserved the inhabitants of other worlds from sin. Every world throughout immensity engages the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Now get this next sentence. Christ is mediating in behalf of man, and the order of unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. But wait. They didn't have a legal penalty of sin that needed to be paid. They didn't have a blood payment offered to the Father. He didn't have to stand as a defense attorney to defend them against allegations. What? This author clearly was misinformed. You see, those who hold the legal view, they can't process this. Because mediation is a legal process. In their view. When you understand design law view, you understand that God is an infinite being. And only an infinite being can know him perfectly, which requires Jesus to be fully God as well. And that's why I believe Jesus is fully God. And Jesus is the Father's envoy, ambassador, representative, mediator who leaves infinity and enters into linear existence to interface with all of God's intelligent beings, representing God rightly. Here's the second quote. This is uh, Signs of the Times, June 27, 1895. In the purity of his life, Jesus had revealed the Father, and the glory of God had beamed forth from his character. The perfection of the Father had been displayed before unfallen worlds, before heavenly intelligences, and to sinful men. In the mediatorial work of Christ, the love of God was revealed in its perfection to men and angels. Pause right there. Mediatorial is achieving what? What's the function of mediation in this usage of the word? What's he doing? Revelation. Revealing. To whom? To man and to angels, but to, to created beings. Where's the action? Which way is Jesus facing? Is he tell, trying to inform the Father? Father, you don't know how hard it is on those people. I went down there. I partook of them. Now that I've partaken of their human nature and been tempted in every way just like them, I now know how hard it is, Father. You don't know how bad it is on those people down there. You need to know and have mercy because you're a, a stern and just God. But, but I've suffered in their place. I know how bad it is on them. Please, Father, be merciful. I hope you understand what I just said is a gross ugliness. It is not reality. Yet that is how it is presented over and over and over again. It's a lie. It's a fraud. This is mediation. Remember, God is an infinite God. He knows everything. But we're the ones who didn't know God. We're the ones who need a truth revealed to us. Jesus is mediating the truth, methods, principles, powers even of God the life of God we become partakers of the divine nature he's mediating that to us 
Keep on with the quote. Having overcome the temptation and borne the test in the wilderness, having overcome in our behalf, he bends his steps towards Calvary. And in the perfection of humanity, he grasps the world. And in the fullness of divinity, he lays hold upon the throne of God. What is being described? What function is being described here? He's grabbing, in his perfection of humanity, he's grabbing humanity, and with his divinity, he's grabbing, and what, and what do you think he's doing with those two? At one meant. He's bringing them back to one, to unity. This is what's happening. He is the bridge. He is the unifier. He is the one who seals the gap or the damage that, that Adam's rebellion caused for the human species. This is his mediator work, fixing the damage that happened. Now, keep me on with the quote. He lays hold upon the throne of God and proclaims the result of his terrible conflict with the enemy, exclaiming, now is the prince of this world cast out. Now is the last enemy destroyed. From, from where is the prince of the world cast out? From the hearts and minds of those who align with him. That's exactly right. The usurper to the throne and kingdoms of the world is put to flight. His confederacy of evil is broken and scattered. With his human arm, talking about Christ now, he encircles the race of Adam. With his divine arm, he grasps the throne of God and unites finite man with infinite God. This is atonement. This is atonement. And with God and earth with heaven, he sees as a result of his victory a new heaven and a new earth from which every trace of evil is removed. And from where God is in all and all to its righteousness. Yep. So what do you think about that? Do you see the difference than what you get when you look through imperial law? Do you see how deeply Christianity is infected with this imperial law misconstruing of God, this lie that keeps people from actually trusting and knowing him? So we have all these theologies, we have to be protected. Jesus is our advocate. Well, let's, let's turn to Friday's lesson, because we can't stop on what I said without going to Friday's lesson. And this is a quote from a book called Prophets and Kings, page 586. In his own strength, man cannot meet the charges of the enemy. In sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who, will, who by repentance and faith have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause, and by the mighty arguments of Calvary, vanquishes their accuser. He, his perfect obedience to God's law has given him all power in heaven and in earth, and he claims from his Father mercy and reconciliation for guilty man. To the accuser of the people, he declares, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. These are the purchase of my blood, brands plucked from the burning. And those, and to those who rely on him in faith, he gives the assurance, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with the, with the change of raiment. What do you hear? You see, this is used by the imperialists. Can we start calling them the imperialists? <laughs> Can we start calling them the imperialists? Yeah. Yeah. What do you hear if you're an imperialist? You hear that we are in legal trouble. We have an advocate who's going to make a plea before the Father to protect us from the righteous judgment that's to come. That's not what actually was said at all. It wasn't said at all. But I would encourage, but it's not super clear in this passage. 
So the same author, we want to read more widely to under, unpack this plea thing. What's this about? You should be asking, well, who, to whom is he pleading? To whom is he pleading? Under imperial law, he has to plead to the judge. Like we, in our courtroom, we, we plead to the judge. That's not design law. When you understand design law, where are the power of lies? Where, do the, where does the lies have their power? Do they have their power with God? Any more since the cross, do they have, they have any power with the angels in heaven? Where do lies have power? In the hearts and minds of sinners on earth. That's where they have power. Okay? He vanquishes the accuser. Who listens to the accuser? Does God listen to the accuser? Well, he, he's making a really good argument here. Uh, you know, Jesus, I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm really being persuaded by this accuser over here. I, I'm not sure about this. Uh, do you have anything to say, uh, Jesus? No. God isn't persuaded by the accuser. He has no... Just like, just like when he went to raise the body of Moses and the accuser shows up. And what's Jesus say? The Lord rebuke you, talk to the hand, got nothing to say to you. I don't listen to you. Mm-hmm. Nobody in heaven listens to him. Mm-hmm. Only we listen to him. So with that in mind, let's uh, read, lift him up, page 234. Through the plan of salvation, Jesus is breaking Satan's hold upon the human family and rescuing souls from his power. Pause. What's Satan's power? Lies. Lies. Remember the math we've done before. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust. But um, him who, um, by his death, Jesus destroys him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Life eternal is knowing God. What's eternal death then? Not knowing God. So Satan's power of death are the lies that he tells that we believe that keep us from knowing him. So he's breaking Satan's power by revealing truth that destroys the lies about God. All the hatred and malignity of the arch-rebel is stirred as he beholds the evidence of Christ's supremacy. And with fiendish power and cunning, he works to wrest from him the remnant of the children of men who have accepted his salvation. Notice what Satan is trying to do. Trying to take us from Christ. How can he take you from Christ? Do you think he can get... Well, you know, Jesus... uh, I got a long list here. I've been keeping really good track all the bad stuff they've done, and uh, and you know what? Your 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 blood has only really been applied to three hundred and thirty seven thousand of these, but there's one down here in the corner you missed, and he's mine. Is, you think that's how it works? Do you think he's making an argument to Jesus or God to give us to him? No. No. He's trying to. Re- how can you be taken from Christ's hands? By you rejecting Christ. That's exactly right. That's how he's working. He's working in your heart's mind. Notice, continuing on with the quote. He leads men into skepticism, causing them to lose confidence in God and to separate from his love. This is how he does it. Okay? He tempts them to break his law, and then he claims them as his captives and contests the right of Christ to take them from him. He knows that those who seek God earnestly be, for pardon and grace will obtain it. Therefore, he presents their sins. Very important. Listen. Presents their sins before them to discourage them. Not before God in some legal court to get God to make a legal ruling of condemnation. That's fraudulent. He presents their sins before them to discourage them. He is constantly seeking occasion against those who are trying to obey God. Even their best and most acceptable service he seeks to make appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. Pause. 
He endeavors, Satan endeavors to secure our condemnation by who? By us. By us. I'm so, I'm so horrible. I'm no good. God can't forgive me. I've gone too far. He's trying to get us to condemn ourselves and believe we're beyond God's salvation. That's what he's trying to do. Man cannot, note, man cannot meet these charges himself. In his sin-saint garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea. Advocate, pleading, okay? In behalf of all who by repentance and faith have committed their, the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and vanquishes their accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. Pause. To whom is he pleading the mighty arguments of Calvary? Who needs to be convinced that he loves you still? That your sin has not disqualified you from God's grace? That Christ's uh, uh, victory at Calvary is sufficient to purge, cleanse, renew, rebuild, heal you? Who needs to be convinced of that? The, the Father, God, uh, truly Father, my sacrifice is sufficient. If you just let me apply it, this remedy will really work. Just trust me on this, Father. Give me a chance to prove it to you. Does the Father need to be convinced that what Christ has achieved is sufficient? Who needs to be convinced? He is not pleading with his Father. It's such a fraud. His perfect obedience to God's law, even to death on the cross, has given him all power in heaven and earth. That was another quote, remember? Okay? He cl- and he claims of his Father mercy and reconciliation for guilty man. Now notice, after claiming what he does, to the accuser of his people he declares... The Lord rebuke you, Satan. These are the purchase of my blood, brands plucked from the burning. Those who rely upon him in faith receive the comforting assurance. We receive this quote from Jesus. Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with a change of clothing. All that have put their put on the robe of Christ's righteousness, will stand before him as chosen and faithful and true. God has, uh, Satan has no power to pluck them out of the hand of Christ. We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea in our behalf. He is able to silence the accuser with arguments founded not upon our merit, but upon his own. What did you hear happening? Do you hear the father being persuaded here? These arguments aren't for the Father. This battle is happening in your mind, in my mind, in your heart, in my heart, on who you're going to trust, who you're going to believe. That's the battle. And one closing point uh, from Thursday's lesson. There's a quote from, I put this in here from Great Controversy, 614. And see if you can now explain this to many Adventists who've lived in fear of this most of their life. When Christ leaves the sanctuary, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth. In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. End quote. Do you know many Adventists? All, the Adventists who are level four and below are terrified by this. It's scary. If, if, if he's not there to, to hide, hide my sin from the Father, if he's not there to erase it out of the book, if he's not interceding in my behalf, how will I ever survive? Because when the Father looks at me, I'm still wicked, I'm still sinful. They misunderstand intercession. He's not interceding with his Father. He's interceding with your heart to win you to the point of absolute trust where you trust your life in his hands and he fixes the brokenness in you and you are those people described in Revelation. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. 
And once he restores in you his righteousness, once you're a partaker of the divine nature, once you've been healed and settled and sealed so you cannot be shaken from it, he, doesn't, he has finished his intercessory work. He has brought you back into oneness with Father. So he can step out from between the two of you and say, here, Father, meet my friend. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what Jesus has done. Lord, we, we just pray that you will finish the work that you've begun in us, healing and restoring us, enlightening us and drawing us and making us effectual witnesses. The time has come in human history for the message to go forward, to fear you in, in the most awesome way possible, be in all of you and to glorify you in our lives because it's time for people to make a right judgment about you. Empower us to give this final message, to call the question, to call people, to answer the question, if the Lord is like an imperial dictator, then worship him, but if he's the creator who built all reality, and loves us and has provided everything to restore us, then worship him. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.